Today's episode of Help Me Teach the Bible was recorded in 2016. You can find episodes on every book of the Bible, along with topical conversations on Bible teaching, at tgc.org slash podcasts. If this is God's king, then we need something better. We need a king who doesn't share our sinfulness. We need a king who doesn't fall like David fell. Did he rule with justice and righteousness for a time? Yes, he did, but it didn't last, did it? Impressive as he was for a time, he turns out to be just like me. Help Me Teach the Bible. I'm Nancy Guthrie, and this is the podcast for people who love God's Word, and we go to God's Word not just seeking something for ourselves. We're seeking to understand God's Word with a depth and clarity that we would actually be equipped to teach it to someone else. And, uh, Today's podcast is a continuation of a previous conversation with a good friend and fabulous teacher, John Woodhouse. So, John, thank you for continuing this conversation on Second Samuel with me. I'm looking forward to getting into it again. Nancy. We only got through First Samuel chapters 1 through 7. Uh, in our previous, in part one of this conversation, we have a really long way to go here in second Samuel. Cause how many chapters are in this book? Like 30? Uh, yeah. Something like that. That's exactly right. So, 31. um, let's just dive into it. Shall yeah, we? Let's go. When we completed our last conversation, we'd come to the end of what we called not just the most important chapter in this book, but really one of the most important chapters in the whole Bible. Yes. Uh, chapter seven of second Samuel, where God made a promise to David um, that he was going to build him a house. He was going to make his family into an enduring dynasty of kings. And that, in fact, his kingdom and his throne would last forever. And this is the way in which the promise that the whole Bible is about, the promise that was given to Abraham at the beginning, uh, is going to be realized. It's going to be realized through a king, a son of David. So we're at the point in this story where earlier what's happened is he's, David has become king over all 12 tribes. He has been established in God's city, the city of Jerusalem. He's brought the ark into the city. And now he's received this incredible promise. The story of his kingdom and his rule um, is told in the rest of this book. So Perhaps yeah. you can pick up for us what happens after this incredible promise is made. Yeah. Uh, once the promise is made, and uh, in the second half of uh, 2 Samuel 7, David responds in a prayer that uh, shows he understands what's going on and, uh, and uh, understands the, enormous, the enormity uh, of the promise that he's heard from God. The next few chapters um, show us this king. Now, we, now it's, if it wasn't clear before, it's certainly clear now uh, that he is God's king. Uh, and he is uh, God's chosen king. He is exercising God's rule. And we get these snapshots of what this king is like, which as we've been seeing all along uh, is an anticipation of the kingship of Jesus. So in various ways, we're being prepared to understand the King Jesus. Let me just show you, for example, um, uh, in chapter 8, uh, we have uh, a picture of 
uh, one aspect of David's reign, namely his victory over all the enemies. Uh, All the enemies of God's people are defeated again and again and again. And this extraordinary phrase in chapter 8, verse 15, where if I can just give it to you literally, it says, David did justice and righteousness for all his people. Now just think about that for a moment. That is absolutely remarkable. Has there ever been a ruler in the history of the world of whom you would say at any point he did justice and righteousness for all his people? Well, for a moment, uh, ever so briefly, I'm afraid, but for a moment, that's what David was like. Uh, It was an extraordinary kingdom of justice and righteousness. Uh, And at the end of the day, that's what we're all longing for. We're longing for a world in which things are right, where wrongs are righted, uh, where, uh, where fairness works, where there isn't inequity. It becomes a phrase, of course, uh, throughout the rest of the Bible, particularly in the prophets, summing up what God's kingdom is about, uh, bringing about uh, the, the situation where everything is put right. That's what the phrase means. It's more than legal. It's not just justice in a legal sense. Uh, The phrase conveys the idea of everything being put right in relationships, in the way in which the world is working. Well, David's kingdom was like that uh, for a little while, and uh, chapter 8 shows us that. Into chapter 9, it becomes a little bit more personal because there's this uh, uh, wonderful little figure, Mephibosheth, uh, the lame man, the son of Jonathan, and therefore grandson of Saul. Uh, But the theme of the chapter is essentially kindness. Um, again, we won't get into the details, but it's worth looking at that word throughout David's kingdom. Uh, The word crops up. Unfortunately, the translations are slightly different at times. But David's kindness towards Mephibosheth. There are various dimensions to this, but one thing is that Mephibosheth might be the very person you wouldn't expect David to be kind to. Mm -hmm. Because if there's an alternative possibility uh, to come to the throne, uh, it would be a grandson of Saul. Uh, But no, David shows kindness to Mephibosheth. Uh, That's the character of God's king. Uh, He shows kindness. Uh, The fact that Mephibosheth is also lame is a fascinating sort of anticipation of the way in which Jesus showed kindness, isn't it? That that the lame uh, were recipients of his kindness. Mm -hmm. But uh, the most important thing, there are various other details to be drawn out, but the most important thing here is the character of the king. You get to chapter 10 and you see the other side of this because chapter 10 is also about the kindness of the king, but this is kindness spurned. And uh, David shows kindness uh, to a foreigner. Uh, again, you can, you can read up the details at the beginning of the chapter, how that works. They spurned his kindness uh, and they didn't get away with that. Uh, God's king is not a sentimentalist. Uh, you reject God's king, you have to deal with God's king. God's king will deal with you. Uh, and that seems to be uh, the, the the major theme of chapter 10. I think that the right place to sort of see a major break in the book of 2 Samuel is here at the end of chapter 10. Uh, there, are, there are various ways of dividing books. Uh, books, like any great work of art, are complicated, and you can see them from various angles. But in this book, uh, there is a major turn that comes in chapter 11, Uh, to which we'll come uh, in just a moment. But uh, the picture of David, God's king, in chapters 8, 9 and 10, uh, I think is very important. The the, the chief theme there is the character 
of God's kingdom. Yes, then we come to chapter 11. And for most of us, in terms of the sermons we've heard that would come from uh, 2 Samuel, maybe this is the passage we've heard preached the most. Maybe you have a thought about why that is, even. Um, Because it's it's an extraordinary story. It, It really is like David and Goliath in 1 Samuel. To because it's just such an extraordinary story. It's got into, well, this one probably doesn't get into the children's storybook so much, does it? Like David and Goliath <laughs> Maybe does. Maybe not so much. <laughs> but it's such a, but it is such a powerful story of human failure uh, and such a, you know, it, it really is a, it's deeply emotional if you follow it. It's horrifying. Yes. And, uh, uh, yeah, it's it, 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 and it's it's told with extraordinary skill too. Um, yes, and uh, it, it most I'm not surprised that it's so well known. There, there's one question I have about it, a number of questions, and you can help us with how best to approach this story. Uh, it's often called his adultery with Bathsheba, and that always kind of perplexes me because he's the king, and he has seen this woman and sent for her. So, are the sins here? adultery and murder of Uriah or would would you label David's sin in regard to Bathsheba something perhaps even more sinister than some kind of romantic or even simply sexual um, liaison yeah uh, it is much bigger than that Uh, that's not to say that those that those things are small Uh, but uh, here you have God's king uh, with the extraordinary promise that has been given to him and the extraordinary way in which God was working out through this king that he was this kind king, he was this powerful king, uh, this king who brought justice and righteousness to uh, to the people. Um, uh, and it's a little bit like uh, Genesis chapter 3. Uh, 2 Samuel 11 corresponds really in the Bible story to Genesis chapter 3 with all the promise of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, the grace of God that had been given to them, the promise of life that had been given to them. And then what do they do? They turn their back on it all. Uh, In this chapter, when David in the following chapter, in chapter 12, uh, uh, receives a word from God, uh, he is told that he has despised God's word. And God's word, I'm sure that that is a reference to the promise. So the promise had been given, the extraordinary promise. And this man turned his back on it and walked away from everything that that's, that promised to And the, the adultery, the, the, the deception, the cover-up, the murder, the lies uh, were all fruit of that. But it just showed that at the end of the day, David was not up to ruling God's kingdom. Just like Adam wasn't up to ruling the world. Uh, we need something better. We need someone better. Help us with how to apply this. I mean, oftentimes when we do hear this taught, uh, what comes out of it are some lessons about how to we should deal with sexual temptation. And as you're talking about it so much in terms of God's king, we've had this picture of what God's God's king will be like. And then all of a sudden there there's here a fall. I. I'm not quite so sure that we want to put our emphasis as a how-to emphasis. Yes, I'm, I'm sure that that's right. That we should not put it uh, simply at a how-to emphasis. But we shouldn't um, – I, I, I don't want to miss the reason that that is so attractive 
And the reason is that we can see ourselves in David. Yes. Uh, if we are honest, I think we would admit that if I was put in just those circumstances, there is a good chance I would have done just those things. If I was powerful enough to cover up my crimes, you know, there's a good chance I would. Uh, in other words, what David is displaying here, now, you know, there's a bigger significance we'll come to, but he is displaying uh, the depth of human depravity that I share with him. Uh, I don't have to be too imaginative to imagine. My, and that's why the story is so powerful at a level of addressing that and saying, this is what we are like, we human beings are like. But in the context of the book of 2 Samuel, in the context of the Old Testament, in the context of the Bible, uh, it's saying something bigger than that because here is, if this is God's king, then we need something better. We need a king who doesn't share our sinfulness. Uh, We need a king who uh, doesn't fall like David fell. Uh, righteous, uh, did, did he rule with justice and righteousness for a time? Yes, he did, but it didn't last, did it? Uh, and the overwhelming thing that I find myself saying at the end of uh, 2 Samuel 11 is, well, if that promise of God is true, and of course it is, then it can only be fulfilled with something greater than this man. Uh, impressive as he was for a time, uh, he turns out to be just like me. It is beautiful picture, though, isn't it, for us when we get into chapter 12 and Nathan uh, offers what must be the most pointed sermon application all of all time. Yes. <laughs> I mean, it's probably not a good idea for us as teachers when we stand up and we say something about a sin and point to someone in the group and say, you are the man, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> like Nathan did. Um, however... Isn't this another amazing thing? You talked earlier about how David would be one of the greatest men in history. At this point, he does show us a sense of greatness, doesn't he, in his willingness to repent and his confidence in God's forgiveness? You know, I'm not sure. Really? Okay, talk to me about Uh, that. I think that when you get to the end of chapter 11, your view of David is so low. This man, okay, he took Bathsheba, perhaps he took her by force. I don't know. Mm -hmm. It's possible. Uh, And at every point after that, he refused to take responsibility for what he had done. And he didn't care that people died for him to cover it up. Not just Uriah, who he'd planned to die, but others died. Faithful servants of King David, uh, slaughtered in order to keep David, to cover things up for David. If you read the story in, 1 Samuel, in 2 Samuel 11 carefully, you'll notice at one point he sends a message to Joab, and literally it says, don't let this thing be evil in your eyes, Joab. Don't think for a moment that this is evil, because your king doesn't think it's evil. He's a callous brute. I mean, he really is terrible. And of course, the end of the chapter, and again, I'm not quite sure why the English translations refuse to pick this up, But uh, the words that I just quoted are echoed where it says the thing that David had done was evil in the eyes of the Lord. Uh, That's how it goes, literally echoing him saying, don't let it be evil in your eyes, Joab. Well, it was evil in the eyes of the Lord. And then this word of God comes to him. Nothing else could bring David to his knees. Nothing else could crush him. Nothing else but, but the word of God eventually shattered him. 
And uh, here, of course, we have some wonderful things in the Psalms, but here in this narrative, uh, it's only two words. In Hebrew, it's just two words, I have sinned against the Lord. That's all he says. Uh, And you say, okay, God's word has been pretty powerful to bring this callous brute to his knees. He confesses his sin, and then I think the most utterly remarkable and uncomfortable words are Nathan saying, the Lord has put away your sin. And as a reader, I want to say, what? God has put away his sin? How can that be right? People died. Where's the justice in that? How can that be right? And God's grace is as uncomfortable as David's depravity was deep. In in a sense, in terms of the discomfort, it gets worse. Because you know what? God then went on and blessed the marriage of David and Bathsheba. I wouldn't. Somebody in my church got married in those circumstances. I tell you what, I, I, I don't think I could keep them. But God's grace is so absolutely unfathomable. He takes that sin of David and somehow brings good out of it. And uh, he, he so puts away David's sin. Uh, when, it's only half a verse. The Lord has put away your sin. And although his sin still has consequences, we'll come to that in a moment, it's not as though there are no consequences for his evil. Evil has consequences, and David's evil had terrible consequences. But in God's dealing with David, uh, God was not going to take his sin into account. Uh, David would, you know, in our Christian terms, in our New Testament terms, David was now righteous in God's eyes. Uh, And I say, how can that be? Such is the grace of God. Mm-hmm. And here you're getting a glimmer again. That is the power that is at work in this purpose of God to bring everything to their good, to fulfill his good purpose for all things. You're getting it in the sort of small scale story of this man, David, that God can, uh, no explanation as to how at the moment mm-hmm. uh, in this stage of the story, but God can actually put away sin like David's and continue, and continue, and his purposes not be overthrown. Uh, this grace of God is extraordinary. But when you teach this, John, would you not be sure to go on to say how that sin is going to be dealt with? I mean, because yeah. it's not just swept under the rug. No, no, no. That that, that is right. Uh, as a Bible teacher, this is a bit of uh, there's, a, there's a bit of a choice here. Uh, you need to know the people you're teaching. Uh, how much do they already know? Uh, you don't have to say everything in every talk, in every sermon. Uh, and so I'm happy to leave that question buzzing around people's minds with certain groups of people. I know they'll be aware that hey, that's pointing me to the cross, isn't it? Uh, that's where the, all this is dealt with. And, I, and that's right. But in the course of a particular Bible teaching session, whether it's a sermon or any, or any other, I might not necessarily try to pack everything in. And I'm happy for questions to be there uh, and uh, for questions to remain for some time in people's minds. Uh, Of course, if it's a group of people who've never heard about Jesus, never heard about the cross, then I'd want to say something about it then. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Can we talk a little bit about these consequences? Yeah. I mean, there there are a number of them. First, first we do have the child who, who dies. Yeah. And you and I are using the term consequences. Uh, I believe it's uh, Nathan the prophet who says to him in verse 14, 
Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. And I suppose, John, because, as you know, I interact with a lot of couples who have lost a child. So a question that comes up when you've lost a child is, is God punishing me for something I've done? Through yeah. the death of my child. Yeah. Um, how would you answer that based on this passage? Uh, I wouldn't answer it based on this passage. Uh, that is to say, this is a very particular death of a child in very particular circumstances and quite wrong to generalise and say that the death of every child is like this. Um, it's a, a little bit like the blind man in uh, John chapter 9 where people say, well, uh, did he sin or his parents sin? Is that why he's blind? And Jesus said, no, it's not, nothing to do with that. There's another purpose that God has in this. Uh, does that mean that it's never the case that somebody who's born blind might be the result of somebody's sin? No, no but, but you, don't, you don't jump to those conclusions that you know what God's purposes are in a particular thing. The, uh, our trust in God must come from our, uh, our knowledge of God's character, his goodness, his faithfulness, not Always, and this this comes out with David, actually, uh, not always knowing precisely what God is doing in any particular circumstance. You'll notice in this, in this case, even though David was told that, he then prays and prays and prays and prays and prays that the, that the child might be spared. Uh, when the child dies, he said, I, who knows, the Lord might have answered my prayer, but he didn't. Uh, so we don't find comfort by being given knowledge of exactly what God's purpose is in any particular circumstance. But we knew, we do know what God's character is and we trust him. And we recognize that God's purposes are bigger than anything we can see. And one of the things I think about this little child, I mean, it does bring tears to your eyes to read the story. Child is born out of David's wickedness. David is not allowed to have that child. Uh, and a consequence is the child dies. I don't know. But God's purposes of dealing rightly with that child have eternity as the context. God will deal rightly with that child. I'm not saying I know what he'll do, but what he'll do will be right and good in his eyes, which is better than my eyes, and he's got all eternity to sort that out. Uh, there's a For those who are preparing... Uh, to this and what to deal with it. There is a very helpful discussion of this in uh, John Calvin's commentary on uh, 2 Samuel, where he does uh, talk about this at some length, and uh, I just recommend that. Yes. But there seem to be many more consequences in David's uh, family and his children besides just the death of this one. As yeah. we move into chapters 13 and 14, we have... Oh, my, it's overwhelming between these brothers. and Yes, sisters. I said earlier in our earlier conversation that chapter 13 is probably the worst chapter in the Bible in terms of being a horrible, horrible story. Uh, and I think it is. Um, let's not have a competition to find a worse one. But uh, <laughs> uh, uh, Amnon, David's oldest son. Okay, so now we're reading the story of David's sons. There's been a promise about David's sons. But we've seen the character of David, the flawed character of David, and we see it coming out in his sons as well. Um, and the, the question through this is the sort of question, it's, it's sort of like the question you ask when you live in the world today. You've heard God's promise, and then you look around the world and you say, how can it possibly be? Well, here you've heard God's promise. Now have a look at the sons of David. 
that the promise pointed to. And you say, how can it possibly be? And this is a this this realistic account of history. How it's if you're going to cho- you've got to choose to believe the evidence of your eyes or the evidence of your ears. Are you going to believe God's word to us, or are you going to believe what you can observe? Uh, and uh, the Bible's message is you can't believe what you can observe because you can't see very well. Uh, what we see and perceive and understand through our senses uh, is 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 very superficial. Uh, but God has made a promise and he will keep it. And through these chapters, uh, which we can probably move through fairly quickly, mm-hmm. even though it's really, really worth spending some time on, and I'll give a couple of reasons for that before we do pass through them. But uh, one of the major things is, uh, how can God's promise be believed? And one of the hints as to how God's promise can be believed is to keep your eye on David, because the grace of David transforms him. And the man that you see emerging from these pages is a restored man. The grace of God is able to restore this king, uh, this man David. Uh, he's still flawed and he still won't be the answer to the world's problems. Uh, we need someone better than that. Uh, but uh, in a fascinating way, David's experience from, uh, from about chapter 14, 15, particularly 15 onwards, is a remarkable anticipation of the experience of Jesus. Uh, can I just sketch that briefly? Yes, please give uh, us some examples of that. <clears throat> well, uh, by the time you get to chapter 15, and I have to leave you to fill in the details, uh, David becomes the rejected king, and he's driven out of Jerusalem and, and, and flees from Jerusalem uh, as the king rejected by his people uh, who are stirred up by, uh, by Absalom as it happens. And as, as, as Jesus leaves Jerusalem, uh, there's this uh, poignant description of, the, of, the, of his departure with those who are with him. There are still, there are still people with him. Uh, they leave Jerusalem. Uh, they walk down the valley into the Kidron Valley. They cross the brook Kidron, climb the Mount of Olives on the other side. Does that remind you of anything? Mm-hmm. I have no doubt, having looked at this, uh, that the Lord Jesus, when he left Jerusalem, walked down into the valley, crossed the brook Kidron, as John tells us in his account, and climbed the Mount of Olives, that he was thoroughly aware that he was treading in the path of King David. Uh, He was the rejected king, uh, just as David had been. Uh, And I, I, (laughs) I have been almost moved to tears reading the Gospel accounts again, realizing the depth of it. Because as, as David was rejected, People were so aware of what had been lost. This kingdom that for just a moment, it was a little bit Camelot-like, but that's only a fairy story. This is history. Uh, There was a kingdom of righteousness and justice and goodness and kindness just for a moment, and now it's all been lost. And uh, we read that the people wept. David wept. We even read that the whole land wept as David left Jerusalem. How about that day that Jesus left Jerusalem, crossed the brook Kidron, climbed the Mount of Olives, and within a few hours would die on the cross, the rejected king. Uh, These chapters, more than any other part of 1 and 2 Samuel, and there are several parts in 1 and 2 Samuel, but here more than anywhere, I think both Jesus himself and also the gospel writers as they record the life of Jesus are conscious that Jesus, uh, in a sense, uh, trod the path that David trod. Uh, 
now, when he did it, it was more profound. It was far deeper. Uh, David was the rejected king in a significant way because of his own sinfulness. Uh, Jesus was the rejected king, though he was sinless. Um, so the, the contrast is as much as the comparison, but it's, it really is quite fascinating. One of the things um, you, you notice here too, as, uh, as David leaves Jerusalem, he meets people. Uh, I had a little um, exposition of these chapters and I thought, people who met David. You know how you sometimes look at the Gospels, you can talk about people who met Jesus, because the Gospels are like that. Uh, Jesus was a person who uh, encountered people, and in that encounter, their reaction to Jesus really defined their lives and changed things, changed everything. Well, it was a little bit like that, only a little bit like that with, with David. And you've got a similar kind of story where, as the rejected king uh, leaves Jerusalem, he meets one person after another, and their reaction to the king uh, is uh, is ever so important and teaches us so much. Now, uh, that takes us through, if we're wanting to move on fairly quickly, really through close to the end of the book, uh, that kind of story. Do you want to pick up any more, say, well, up to Well, just talk 19? with us a little bit about Absalom, because he is such a significant character in these stories. And so if we're understanding uh, that we're seeing David as uh, you know in the shadow as the shadow of Christ cast back into the old testament how does that help us understand what's going on here with absalom well absalom is the kind of figure who is um so close to the king and yet rejects him he rejects david now in the story of david and absalom it's messy and it's complicated because david's got his faults and you can up to a point, but only up to a point, you can sympathise with Absalom. Uh, David refused to take any action uh, against Amnon, uh, his oldest son, who was such a uh, such an awful, awful person uh, and did such uh, terrible things. Um, uh, and Absalom absolutely hated his brother for what he had done to his sister, uh, to Absalom's sister. Uh, and, of course, Absalom ends up killing Amnon. Uh, so there is little good to say about Absalom, even though you can have some sympathy and say, well, David's contribute to the cause of that. But nonetheless, you, you get this little glimmer of what happens in a man who is so close to God's king and yet rejects him. And in fact, puts all his trust uh, in the very opposite of what God's king stands for. Uh, it's Absalom who gets chariots. Uh, chariots are an interesting uh, theme of the Bible. It's interesting just do a little study of chariots through the Bible. Uh, you remember how the uh, it's the psalmist, isn't it, who, who talks about those who put their trust in chariots. Chariots are, are sort of a represent human power, uh, human ingenuity, and uh, and so on. You put your trust in chariots, you'll be disappointed. Well, it, it was Absalom who introduced chariots to Israel. He was going to be the kind of king who was handsome and tall and powerful and had chariots, uh, and he was going to overthrow God's king. Uh, well, you see, I, I, I think you see in, um, in Absalom a little bit of a picture uh, of the person who has every opportunity. Uh, perhaps the Jewish people of Jesus' day are the closest example, uh, the Jewish people who rejected Jesus, uh, so close to God's king, uh, but they choose to put their trust elsewhere. Uh, and reject him. 
Uh, finally, they will be overthrown as Absalom was overthrown, uh, but they cause a great deal of trouble in the meantime. Will we get near the end of the book of Second Samuel? Uh, really, throughout First and Second Samuel, there are incredible. There's incredible poetry and song. Yes. First uh, Samuel begins with that song of Hannah. Yes. Uh, the beginning of Second Samuel, we had David's song for, at the death of Saul, and yes. here we come to the end of Second Samuel, and uh, we have in chapters twenty-two uh, and into twenty-three some because he. Look, it's it's po- all poetry. Yes. David's song of deliverance. So help us with, when we come to this week and we're teaching this song, um, what do we do with it? There are really two poems here. Uh, the one in chapter 22 is one, and the, uh, the shorter one uh, at the beginning of chapter 23 is a separate and distinct uh, poem. Uh, they're set in the context of the epilogue, as uh, we might call it, which is chapters 21 to 24. 21 to 24. And the epilogue uh, really stands outside the story. The story has come to an end in chapter 20, the story as such. And now we've got a bit of a flashback and a reflection. Um, uh, We, uh, again, I won't go into too much detail, but the epilogue is one of those parts of the Bible that is very carefully structured. And uh, it's got that uh, kind of, um, uh, they call it a chiasmus uh, arrangement. Um, They're very popular among Bible interpreters. I think that they're often seen when they aren't. But here's one that uh, commentators have noticed for, 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 for a long, long time. Uh, it is, it's pretty clear. If I can just set, set this in, the, in that context. At the beginning, in chapter 21, uh, 1 to 14, uh, and at the end, 24, so both ends of the epilogue, uh, the theme really is God's wrath. And this is the thing, the reality, that David's kingdom could never adequately deal with. Uh, now again, uh, look at it closely. There's a lot to be said there. It's um, uh, they're, they're, they're profoundly moving stories in different ways. But the beginning of the end, we see God's wrath is the theme of uh, those two stories. Uh, inside that, so just just after the beginning and just before the end, and I'm talking about chapter 21 verses 15 to 22 and 23 verses 8 to 34, I think. Uh, we have a picture of the strength of David's kingdom, and it's only human strength. We have a list of his mighty warriors, and that really is why, if that's all that David's kingdom was, it's not going to deal with uh, the big problem of the human race, which is God's wrath uh, against our sinfulness. And then at the centre, you've got these two poems, which seem to me to set before us the hope uh, that there is in this situation. What is the hope? Uh, if, if if all that is true, that God's wrath is the great reality, David's kingdom, even David's kingdom, uh, for all its human strength, can't deal with that problem. The hope of the world, uh, the hope of the human race, uh, is God's promise uh, and his faithfulness to that promise. And that really is the, the, the main theme of these two little poems. Uh, well, actually one rather big poem and, and the shorter one uh, called The Last Words of David. Um, and uh, they need to be set in that context, I think. So uh, they are poems, and they need to be looked at as poems and appreciate the poetic form and so on, 
but they, uh, they are poems about uh, the hope of the world, which is uh, the promise of God and his faithfulness to his promise in broad terms. Well, John, I imagine you've taught through Second Samuel a time or two. Yeah. <laughs> um, when you have taught Second Samuel and come to the end of it, what's been your uh, g- really great hope in terms of its impact on those who've been sitting under your teaching? What should we long for the impact of God's word to be in the lives of those we're teaching this book to? I think we should be drawn afresh to God's king. Uh, We've seen a shadow of him. We've seen the failings of the shadow. uh, But we now stand in the light of the the true king who who has come. We recognize that Jesus is not just the greatest man who's ever lived. He is that. Uh, but he is the one that God promised uh, from the very dawn of time. And uh, our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ is our trust in the promise of God that has this central, huge expression in, at the, in the middle of the book of Samuel, of the book of 2 Samuel. Uh, and uh, I want us to see uh, this king more clearly, to trust God's promises more deeply, Uh, and to uh, see that everything, absolutely everything, is transformed uh, by these realities. You've invested a lot of your life in 1 and 2 Samuel. Now (laughs) you're working on 1 Kings, on a commentary for 1 Kings. Could Could I phrase the question a little more personally? What do you think the impact of focusing so much on the kingship of... Saul and David, and now you're looking towards Solomon. What's been the personal impact on you? To love and long for the kingdom of God. I don't think before I'd sort of found myself uh, almost drowning in the books of Samuel that I had uh, appreciated with the same depth uh, the wonder of Jesus' news, the kingdom of God is at hand. What's the kingdom of God? Well, this book has helped me to see it's a kingdom of righteousness and justice that lasts and will last forever. Uh, is it possible to hope for such a thing? We're living in such a, such a strange and confused world at the moment. Many of us are frightened. Uh, and there's good reason to be frightened. What do you think is going to shape where things will go? What's going to shape where I'm going to go? What's going to shape my life? Ultimately, what is the most powerful shaping force for the history of humanity and the history of the world? Uh, I'm absolutely convinced it's the faithfulness of God. He will bring in his kingdom. And we've had a glimpse of it in uh, this book of 2 Samuel, uh, but only a glimpse, but at the same time a wonderful glimpse. Thank you, John, so much for sharing with us um, the fruit of all of the study that you have done in this book. We're, we're so grateful that we get to learn from your learning. It's been a pleasure and uh, a privilege to share this with you, Nancy. You've been listening to Help Me Teach the Bible with Nancy Guthrie, a production of the Gospel Coalition sponsored by Crossway. 
Crossway is a not-for-profit publisher of the ESV Bible, Christian books, and tracts, including the Preaching the Word commentary on the books of First and Second Samuel by John Woodhouse. And if you're leading a group through these books, you might consider using First and Second Samuel, a 12-week study guide written by Ryan Kelly that's in Crossway's Knowing the Bible study guide series. Learn more about Crossway's gospel-centered resources at crossway.org.